Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. I want to thank Patrick for preaching the word for us last week, and what a blessing that word was. Amen? This last week and a half has been a, an absolute whirlwind for my family. As uh, many of you know, a week ago Wednesday, Christine and the girls and I headed to Thousand Oaks to visit my mom and dad who live there. And uh, we got there in the morning, and my dad was laying down in his bed acting kind of strange. Uh, so I thought that was a little bit odd. Um, we took my mom out to lunch, and uh, there we, after lunch, came back to the apartment. He was still lying in his bed acting a bit strange. And I said, Mom, I, I think he's had a stroke. And so uh, I tried to get my dad to come out of bed and go to the hospital with me, and he was being kind of stubborn and wasn't real lucid. And so I called 911. The ambulance came, uh, forced him onto the gurney, and took him to the local hospital. And from that gurney, it was only about two hours before he was in the OR uh, having surgery to remove a blood clot from his brain. And so my dad was in ICU for about six days and is still in the hospital there in Thousand Oaks today and will likely be in either the hospital or an acute rehab facility uh, for another two weeks or so. But uh, you know, those of you who have been a part of this church for a long time, that my favorite verse in the Bible is one that we sang in one of those songs just a few minutes ago. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that means that if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ and you're doing what he's called you to do and you love the Lord with everything within you, then God promises that the stuff we go through in life won't always be good, but God will work things together for good. And we believe, don't we, that that includes the stuff we don't like. That includes the stuff that is boring. That includes the stuff that stinks. That includes what my family has been going through in the last week and a half. Let me tell you something that I think is an absolute miracle. When we were there in Thousand Oaks a week and a half ago, Christine and the girls and I were supposed to be in Oregon. We had planned for about six months to take our summer vacation to Oregon and visit some friends that live up there in Klamath Falls. And so we had planned on doing We We had talked about it. Christine was back and forth texting uh, with uh, one of the family members about where we were going to go. We were going to hopefully see Crater Lake and, and go to Lake in the Woods and do some things as a family together. We were super excited. And five days before we were to get in our van and head north, five days before they canceled the plans. And so for a whole week, we're sitting there scratching our heads wondering, why on earth did they cancel the plans last minute? And we were a little miffed, to be honest with you. We weren't too happy. And so there we had to come up with a plan B. I said, I guess we're having a staycation and we'll do some things each day. And one of the things we decided to do on that staycation was to head to Thousand Oaks on that Wednesday morning. And if we hadn't headed to Thousand Oaks carrying out plan B on that Wednesday morning, there's a good chance my dad would not be alive today. Because my mom didn't recognize the signs of a stroke that Christine and I could recognize. My mom would not have called the ambulance for probably a number of hours after we called them. And when it comes to a stroke, time is of the essence. Now, what I want to share with you right now has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, but I think it may save a life of a family member that you know. 
So I want to put this on the screen. Some of you have seen this before. How to identify a stroke, F-A-S-T. Say fast with me, fast. There's some signs that you can look at to see if a family member has had a stroke. And if they have, you need to get them to the hospital as soon as possible. Number one, the F is face. One thing you can do if you suspect a family member has had a stroke is to simply ask them to smile. Because what oftentimes happens when someone tries to smile, one side of the face will droop. If the left side droops, that means they've had a stroke on the right side. It's the opposite side from the side that's drooping. And so if the right side is drooping, it means they've had a stroke on the left side. So simply ask your loved one to smile. And if there's some drooping on one side or the other, good chance they've had a stroke. Please call 911 immediately. The A is for arm. When my dad was there on the gurney and he was rushed in by the ambulance to the ER, the attendant doctor came by, and one of the first things he had my dad do was lift his arms. And as he lifted the arms, you began to see one start to slide down. Now, in my dad's case, his stroke affected the speech center, so his sides of the body weren't too terribly affected. But quite often, when you have someone that had a stroke do that, their arm will quickly drop. That's another sign. So do the arm test. Have them hold their arms in position and see if one is stronger than the other. Uh, The S is speech. This happened with my dad. You'll find slurred speech. Uh, Simply ask the person to say their name or ask them where they are. Ask them what city they live in. Simple questions. There'll be slurred speech. There'll be unintelligible speech. If all they can say is no, there's a good chance the speech center's been affected. They've had a stroke. The T is time. This is critical. Time is of the essence. There's a new drug that's out that if you give it to someone within three to four hours of them having a stroke, it will dissolve the blood clot and reverse the effects of the stroke. It's an amazing thing. It's called TPA, if I remember right. And this drug TPA, if you can get that to them within three to four hours of the stroke, then oftentimes it will reverse it quickly. They won't have to go into surgery. In my dad's case, it had been more than four hours. And so, unfortunately, he wasn't able to have that. He's got a longer recovery time. And so the key thing is this could save a family member's life. Do what you do fast. If you suspect that a family member or friend or someone has had a stroke, get them to the hospital as soon as you can because, praise God, he has given doctors and, and uh, neurologists the wisdom to be able to reverse these very quickly if we get them to the right person fast enough. Amen? Amen. Now, let's dive into our message. Thank you. If you're praying for my dad, one uh, prayer that I've been asking some people to pray specifically for him is that by tomorrow he'll be able to swallow safely on his own. The part of his brain that affects his speech also deals with the sequencing with swallowing properly. So he's had a nasal feeding tube for the last week and a half, and the doctors want to put in a more permanent feeding tube if he's not swallowing on his own by tomorrow. We don't want that. We want him to be able to eat safely on his own. So if you're praying for my dad, please pray that specifically. Within the next 24 hours, he'll be able to eat safely on his own. So we're going to start today the gospel according to Luke. This is a marvelous book of the Bible. I need you to open your Bibles, please, to that first chapter and first verse of Luke. It's uh, the third book in your New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, uh, grab that Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own today, it's the third book in the New Testament, the gospel according to Luke. And I think you're going to see as we dive into this book today that this is a marvelous account of the life the ministry, the teaching, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it has a unique angle, a unique perspective that I believe will be a huge blessing to us here. I'm calling this series Seek 
and save, which I derive from the theme verse in Luke, Luke 19, verse 10, which we'll look at in a few minutes. And so today we're going to dive into this book. It'll just be an introduction. I want to give you a bird's eye view of this great book that is rich with truth about Jesus Christ and rich with truth about how Jesus Christ can transform your life even if you've been saved for 50 years. God can speak to you through this book and do a work of transformation yet again. Would you pray with me as we dive into God's Word today? Lord, we come to you humbly, admitting, Lord, that this is not my Word, this is not our Word, this is your Word. And Lord, my heart breaks for those who do not understand the power and the depth and the beauty of this great book that you have entrusted to us. Lord, it was just a few days ago, as you know, I was listening to that interview with Bill Maher as he was criticizing the Bible and tearing it down and presenting it as useless. Lord, I pray that in his life and so many thousands of other lives, Lord, that you would lift the veil and help them to see the truth that your word is living, that your word is active, that there is no book like it in the face of the earth, and your word is truly transformational. Oh, Lord, would you speak to us today through your word? As I ask you often, I ask you again, Lord, I pray that my words would not get in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. encourage you to have your message notes out as well from your bulletins along with a pen or pencil. Uh, What I like to do whenever we dive into a new uh, book of the Bible as we begin a new verse-by-verse study, I like us to ask and answer five key questions. Number one, who wrote it? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, when was it written? Number four, why was it written? And number five, probably my favorite question, why should I care? And I think it's so important for us to answer these five questions so that we can have a bird's eye view of the book so we can know where we're heading over the next several months and also so that we can get a better grasp on why God has placed this book in the Bible. And so we're going to dive right into question number one. Who wrote it? Jot down on your handout. It was written by Dr. Luke. It was written by Dr. Luke. You may remember that we spoke briefly about Dr. Luke earlier this year during our study of the book of Colossians, uh, because in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, quote, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send their greetings. Paul also also mentions Luke in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and in Philemon verse 24. And so there are these three times in the New Testament that Dr. Luke is mentioned by name. So who is this Dr. Luke? It's a great question. So if we piece together the details we find about Luke in the New Testament, it becomes pretty clear that Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul during his second and third missionary journeys. And it also seems clear that Luke remained at Paul's side during his two imprisonments in Rome. Uh, If you remember, the last verse in the book of Acts says that Paul remained under house arrest in Rome for two years, and that's where the book of Acts ends. We believe Luke was with him, and it seems as we piece together uh, historical accounts outside of Scripture, along with traditions of the early uh, church fathers, it seems clear that that at the end of the book of Acts, was referring to Paul's first imprisonment. It seems he was released, 
and was out ministering yet again and then was rearrested. And it was during his second imprisonment in Rome when he was beheaded for his faith in Christ. And so it seems clear that Luke was at Paul's side during his two imprisonments in Rome. Now, that's a remarkable thing to say because Paul had many traveling companions over the years. We think of Barnabas, we think of Silas, we think of uh, John Mark, we think of a number of these traveling companions that he had, but Luke seems to have been one of only a small group of Paul's associates who stuck with him through thick and thin, no matter how bad things got for Paul. Luke stuck by his side year after year, no matter what Paul was going through. So question number one, who wrote the book of Luke? It was written by... Dr. Luke. Question number two, to whom was it written? I want you to be there in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. That answer is given to us in the first few verses of Luke chapter 1, where Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So question number two, to whom was this book written? Well, it was written to a man named Theophilus. The spelling's right there for you in verse 3 if you're checking. It was written to Theophilus. So, great. It was written to Theophilus. Who on earth is Theophilus? I am so glad you asked. Well, as we piece together the details, we come up with this marvelous answer. We don't know. Peggy stole my thunder. We don't know. We don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but a few clues are given to us here. He is called by Paul, excuse me, called by Luke, most excellent Theophilus. It's not the only time we find those words used of someone in Scripture. In the book of Acts, after Paul was arrested, he refers to the governor Felix as most excellent Felix, and then uh, most excellent Festus, the other governor. And so it was a title of respect in the Roman Empire. So that leads many Bible scholars to believe that Theophilus was likely a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire. If he wasn't a high-ranking official, he at least was a man of standing, probably a man of wealth, and there's a very good chance that this Theophilus guy was the one who funded the writing of the book of Luke. So Luke had this desire to write an orderly, accurate, historical account of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry and death and resurrection. And so as he set out to do that, as with writing books today, it takes money. And so Theophilus likely funded the writing of this book and also funded the distribution of the book because it seems clear as we look at the themes of the book of Luke that Luke wanted this book circulated far and wide. First of all, he wanted Theophilus to read it and be blessed by it and know the truth about Jesus Christ. But beyond Theophilus, he wanted this to go to Jews, he wanted to go to non-Jews, he wanted to go to Greeks, he wanted to go to Romans, he wanted to circulate throughout the known world so that the world could know the truth about Jesus Christ. Question number three, when was it written? 
When was it written? Once again, we can't be certain, but as we piece the details together, it seems like it was most likely written in the early 60s. Now, don't mistake that with the 1960s. When we say the 60s, we mean just the 60s. A.D. 60, you can write on your handout and fill in that blank. What was it, when was it written? Around A.D. 60. So as we get our bearings here, this was written about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So about 30 years after he ascended into heaven, Luke wrote this gospel account to let the world know who Jesus was, what he did, and how he can transform their lives, which leads us to question number four, why was it written? Why was it written? Well, let me start by giving you the short and sweet answer, Uh, but in order for you to really appreciate the unique place that Luke holds in the New Testament, I'm going to have to give a little bit longer answer as well. But we'll start with the short and sweet answer, which we find in the theme verse, Luke 19, verse 10. Luke 19, verse 10 says this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's where we find the theme of the book of Luke. So here's the short and sweet answer. Why was Luke written? It was written to offer an accurate and detailed account of Jesus Christ's life, his teaching, his death and resurrection. And here's where it has a slightly different flavor than Matthew, Mark, or John. It's written to give an accurate account of Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection with a special emphasis on Jesus as the loving Savior of all who are lost. Now, some of you would read that and say, well... Isn't that basically the theme of Matthew, Mark, and John as well? Don't they all have the exact same purpose? Not exactly. Remember that there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can think of these four historians as four men standing on four different corners of an intersection at the time of a car accident. Imagine a car accident in the center of an intersection, and each of these four gospel writers have a slightly different angle viewing that accident. They have a slightly different perspective. They all see the same thing, but they present it with a slightly different perspective. That gives us an idea of the different nuances in the four gospel accounts. Quickly, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, and so Matthew highlights Jesus as the king of the Jews. That makes sense because it was a Jewish audience. How about Mark? Mark wasn't writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He was writing primarily to a Gentile Greek audience. And so Mark spends his time not so much on Jesus' teachings and parables. Mark focuses on the miracle worker, Jesus Christ. And he uses this word immediately, quite often in his book. And that word immediately is to demonstrate the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, something that would grip a Greek audience. How about John? John wrote his gospel account later than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He likely wrote it some 60 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. So he was writing to people who had not physically been present with Jesus during his ministry. It was a group of Jews and Gentiles, and he painted the clear picture that Jesus is the Son of God. And he does it from the very first verse of the first chapter. Remember John 1.1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the very beginning, he paints that clear picture that Jesus was very much the Son 
of God. So what about Luke? What's his unique perspective? What's his unique purpose? Well, Luke intended for his gospel account, as I mentioned to you earlier, he intended it for it to be read not just by Theophilus, but by people everywhere, both Jews and Gentiles. And so he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles, and he presents Jesus as the loving Savior of the whole world. Not just the Savior of the Jews, not just the Savior of men, not just the Savior of the rich or the famous. Luke documents example after example after example of Jesus being a Savior available, catch this, for every man, woman, and child. Isn't that encouraging? Consider this. Uh, this I, I hadn't really realized. Maybe I learned it years ago, but as I get older, I, I realize I've forgotten more than I've learned at times. But it seemed like it was something I had never learned before. That word salvation, the word salvation isn't found at all in Matthew and Mark. That's kind of interesting. It's not found at all in Matthew and Mark. John only uses the word salvation one time. But Luke uses the word salvation six times in his gospel account. Luke also uses the word Savior twice and uses the verb form to save more than any other gospel writer. So the gospel writers use this verb form to save, but Luke uses it more. And then he uses the noun Savior more and he uses the noun salvation more than any other. And so Luke puts a big emphasis on Jesus as the world's Savior. Here are a few specifics. I encourage you to jot this down on your handout today. Number one, Jesus is the loving Savior of non-Jews. He's the loving Savior of non-Jews. There are a number of examples of this in Luke's gospel account. For instance, the genealogy of Jesus that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 3. There are two genealogies of Jesus given in the gospel accounts. Mark doesn't give one at all. John doesn't give one at all. But Matthew and Luke do. And so what Bible scholars and many Bible readers over the centuries have done is they've placed these two genealogies of Jesus from Matthew and Luke side by side, and they like to notice the differences between the two. So if you were to do this and look at the genealogy Matthew gives us in Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 3, you'll find some interesting differences. One thing you'll discover is that Matthew only went back as far as Abraham. Now, this would make sense because, remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Who was the father of the Jewish nation? Abraham. So he only goes back as far as Abraham. He's the furthest back ancestor that he mentions of Jesus. But you look at Luke's account in chapter 3, how far back does he go? He goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man, because Luke was writing to a mixed audience, and he wanted every person reading this gospel account to know, be they Jew or Gentile, Jesus Christ is a Savior for you. I think that's pretty cool. He gives that genealogy all the way back to the very beginning with Adam. We notice other interesting things in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel, when he's speaking to the shepherds, letting them know that Jesus will be found wrapped in those claws and lying in a manger, that angel says in Luke 2.10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for some of the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will just be for the Jews. No, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all 
the people. And so Luke makes it clear that Jesus is the loving Savior of non-Jews. Secondly, he makes it clear that Jesus is the loving Savior of women and children. This should make all ladies and children rise up and cheer because remember that in Jesus' day, in the Jewish world, it was very much a male-dominated society. And in the Gentile world, it was also a very male-dominated society. And from the very first chapter of Luke, women play a prominent role. You look at chapter 1, and you notice that uh, these, these different key women are mentioned by Luke in chapter 1 that are all but ignored in the other gospel accounts in the first couple chapters. You, you notice in chapter 1 that uh, Luke alone records the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would give birth to Jesus. Luke's the only one that records that. Only Luke records Mary's visit to Elizabeth, her relative, after the angel had told her that she was going to give birth to the Christ. And it's only Luke that documents Mary's song that she sings after visiting Elizabeth. You look at chapter 2 of Luke, only Luke records for us the account of the prophetess Anna who prophesied about Jesus when Mary and Joseph were dedicating him at the temple. In chapter 10, only Luke records the account of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha ran around like a chicken with her head cut off. Only Luke mentions those things. And Luke spends more time on babies and children than any other gospel writer. I think that's pretty cool. Luke records the details of John the Baptist's miraculous birth in chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, and John don't mention it at all. I like how Luke spends more time on Jesus' birth than any other gospel writer. Only Luke records the dedication of Jesus at the temple when he was eight days old. And he's the only one that records the account of Jesus at the age of 12 being left behind in Jerusalem and his parents are looking for him for three days and they find him in the temple sitting at the feet of the teachers. Only Luke records that. He has this fascination with Jesus' love for babies and children. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that episode you've probably all heard of where the parents are bringing their kids to Jesus and placing the kids on Jesus' lap and he's blessing them. And the disciples get between uh, the parents and Jesus and say, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for your little ragamuffins. He doesn't have time for them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that, but only Luke shares this little tidbit with us. Only Luke mentions that it's not just little children being brought to Jesus, but actually babies. I think that's pretty neat. Luke, think about it. He was a doctor. He was a physician. And by the time he wrote this gospel account, he had likely delivered a lot of babies. And so as a doctor, he had a special place in his heart for little babies. And it must have just lit him up on the inside to know that Jesus did as well. And so he records some of these fascinating, just encouraging little details about Jesus and the aspect of his ministry that maybe Matthew, Mark, and John didn't feel were quite as important for them to include in their gospel account. So Jesus is presented by Luke as the loving Savior of non-Jews. He's presented as the loving Savior of women and children. But also he's presented as the loving Savior of the poor and the nobodies in society. The poor and the nobodies in society. At Christmas time, we, we talk about this a lot around here. That when those angels came to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, Many of you have heard me mention this a lot. Shepherds were absolutely nobodies in ancient Israel. 
they were looked at as basically half human. They weren't counted in the census, so they didn't need to show up to their homeland, their home city, to be counted that year by the Caesar Augustus decree. Uh, They weren't counted because they weren't viewed as fully human. They weren't allowed to be a part of the synagogues. They weren't allowed to worship with other Jews. They were outcasts. They were nobodies. They were looked down upon. They were criticized. They were just considered to be the scum of the earth. And yet the angel goes to them, and Luke is the one that records that for us. Oh, so God wanted to inspire Luke to write these words to make it clear that Jesus is the loving Savior of the poor and the nobodies. I love what the angel says to the shepherds there in Luke 2, verses 11 and 12. The angel says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to all the somebodies. Not what he says, right? Today a Savior has been born to the people that really matter. A Savior has been born to the people that are actually counted in this census. The people who can actually attend a synagogue service. The people that people actually care about. No, that angel talks to those lowly shepherds and say, Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Isn't that awesome? To you. A Savior has been born to you. Turn to the person next to you. Say, A Savior was born for you. Isn't that encouraging? You might think in some of your lower moments... There is no possible way that the creator of the universe could care about me. There's no possible way that Jesus would come for me. And God's word through Luke says, you're wrong. A Savior has been born to you. A Savior has been born for you. Luke chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus makes it clear that he didn't just come to earth to preach the good news to the poor in spirit. Matthew records that for us, that on one occasion at least, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke is the one that tells us that Jesus said he came to preach the good news to the poor, period. Not just the poor in spirit, but just the poor. Jesus came for poor folks like you and me. Isn't that good news? So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, woohoo! Jesus came for me. Luke 14, verse 13, as Jesus is teaching his followers how to throw a party, a party that will really please God, how does he tell us to throw a party in Luke 14, 13? He says, here's how you do it. It's not about the disco ball hanging from the ceiling. It's not about the cheap helium balloons from the Dollar Tree. Here's how you do it. He says, you go and you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to the party. That's how you throw a party that really pleases God. Go for the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So there's this theme running throughout the book of Luke that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of non-Jews as well. Not just the Savior of men, but also the Savior of women and children. And not just the Savior of the rich and famous, but the Savior of the poor and the nobodies as well. And one last little tidbit before we move on to question number five. Luke didn't intend the book of Luke to stand alone. The book of Luke is actually the first of two volumes that Luke wrote. Luke is the first volume. Acts, the book of Acts, is the second volume. One of our adult Sunday school classes is studying the second volume in Luke's writings on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. You can join them if you'd like. That's the second volume of Luke's writings. 
And so he wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. If you look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, you'll, say, you'll see that uh, Luke wrote, In my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote what Jesus did as he taught and as he lived among us. Now in this book, I will share with you what Jesus continued to do and teach. And so as we're answering this question, why was Luke written? Luke was written to make it clear that Jesus Christ came for, the, for everyone. He's the Savior of all the world, even uh, women and children, even the nobodies, even those that are overlooked, even the non-Jews. He's the Savior of all mankind. And so Luke records for us in the book of Luke how Jesus carried out his great mission while he lived among us. As he gets to his second volume, the book of Acts, he records what Jesus continued to do and teach through his followers after Jesus ascended into heaven. And this is something that surprises many people. If you take the book of Luke and put it together with the book of Acts, you've got a big chunk of our New Testament. Many of you know that Paul wrote the most amount of books in our New Testament. We have 27 books in our New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of those 27 books. So who wrote the most of the New Testament? Who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? Most would say Paul because he wrote 13 books. After all, Luke only wrote two. Luke actually wrote a larger part of the New Testament than Paul did because Luke and Acts are much longer than any of Paul's 13 books. Most of his 13 books that Paul wrote were very short You take the material, you add them up, Paul's 13 books are actually shorter than Luke and Acts put together. So Luke, who is most likely the only Gentile writer of a book of the New Testament, I think that's pretty cool. All the other guys that wrote parts of the New Testament were Jewish. The only Gentile writer of the New Testament wrote a larger portion of the New Testament than any other person inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a marvelous first volume in his New Testament writings. Question number five. My favorite question. There's always got to be at least a few in the room that really need this question answered. Why should I care? Why should I care? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I don't want to just tell you why you should care. I want to show you. So I want you to open to Luke chapter 19. Because in Luke 19, I shared with you a few minutes ago that Luke 19 verse 10 is the theme verse of the book of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. But I need to hear those pages turning. Front row, you got a Bible, Jess? Third row, you guys, fifth row, tenth row, you guys have Bibles? Open up. Uh, once again, I don't say this very often, but I try to remind us every once in a while. If you're having trouble reading the small print, just hold it in front of your face and pretend. That, that's, I've done that at a wedding before when the lighting was terrible and I couldn't read it. I had to fake it. And so sometimes it's good for the person next to you to see a Bible in front of you, even if you're struggling to read those words. So grab Luke chapter 19. I want to share with you the context of this theme verse, and I think it'll help answer that question, why I should care. So Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. Hey, I can't quite say amen yet because I've still got a few pages. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho. And was passing through. A man was there by the name of, what's his name? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You remember the song, don't you? So he passed by and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. 
he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed up in a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, Jesus looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus zipped down the tree. He came at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to the, be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if, I, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, I want you to see the context within which Jesus spoke these words. Many of you, like me, love this story of Zacchaeus. And the only place you'll find the account of Jesus ministering to Zacchaeus is, you guessed it, right here in the book of Luke. Now, why? Why do we just see it in the book of Luke? And why did God inspire Luke to include this story so you and I could read it today? I believe he did because God handpicked Luke to be the one to tell the world that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save you. He came to seek and to save you. You are the short little dude up in the tree looking for Jesus. You are the one who is considered by others to be a social reject that is not worth Jesus' time. But you are also the one, like Zacchaeus, who was lost, but was willing to run down the tree and run back to your house and serve Jesus and whoever else he wanted to invite, because when Jesus was willing to call you, you were willing to run to him. And you are Zacchaeus, Because you are also the one who is willing to own up to your own sin and let Jesus help you make things right again. You're Zacchaeus. I am Zacchaeus. We are Zacchaeus. Why should you and I care about the book of Luke? Because you will find Jesus in the book of Luke. And more importantly, Jesus will find you. You'll find Jesus in the book of Luke, and more importantly, he will find you. Those of you who have been here at FCC a long time know that my favorite Greek word in the New Testament is that wonderful word, sprachnitsomai. You say it, and you spit on the person's head in front of you. I love that word, sprachnitsomai. And you've heard me say it before, and you'll probably hear me say it again. That wonderful word, splachnitsomai, comes from the noun form splachna, which literally translates as guts. And that verb form, splachnitsomai, literally means to have a gut-wrenching compassion for someone around you. 
And guess where we find this verb form, splachnitsomai, used the most amount of times in Scripture? Once again, you guessed it, right here in the book of Luke. It's a word used only by Jesus or about Jesus, and that verb form is just here in the book of Luke. And we look at this word splachnitsomai and how it's used, and it's absolutely marvelous how we find this word used in the book of Luke. Only Luke records for us one of the best-loved parables of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably remember it. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells us the story of a man who was traveling to Jericho, And as he was traveling to Jericho, some robbers hopped out and they mugged the man and they beat him to within an inch of his life. And a little bit later, as this man is beaten and naked and bruised and bloody on the side of the road, lying in the dirt, unable to lift himself up to walk to safety, he's helpless on the side of the road. A pastor comes walking by and the pastor ignores him and walks by on the other side. And then a pastor's assistant comes a little later, and he too ignores the man and passes on the other side. And then a foreigner comes, a Samaritan, and it says that Samaritan splachnitsomide him. This Samaritan, this foreigner, looked at this stranger who he'd never met a day in his life, and he looks at him, and he has this gut-wrenching compassion, and so he bends down, and he bandages his wounds. He puts the man up on his own donkey and leads him down to the little hotel, the little Motel 6, because Tom Bodine had left the light on, and he takes the man there. And he paid the fare for him to spend the night. And he said, if there's any other charges, I'll come back and pay for those. And Jesus says, that is how to love like I want you to love. Splachnitsomai kind of love. Most of you know that other parable, one of Christian's favorites, the parable of the prodigal son. Only Luke records it in Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells the story in Luke 15 about this son who basically goes to his dad and says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance money now. And so dad relents. He says, okay, you can have your share of the inheritance even though I'm still alive. That son hangs around a few days and then he takes off. He goes to a distant land and he squanders his inheritance. He squanders his dad's money on prostitutes and on booze. And he runs out of money, ends up hanging out with the pigs. And he's hungrier than the pigs are. And so he says, I guess I'll go home. At least I can be my dad's slave and get a square meal or two or maybe even three every day. And so he goes home and and Jesus says there in Luke chapter 15, As the father lays eyes on his son, it says this, While the young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and splachnitsomide him. He was filled with this gut-wrenching compassion for his unfaithful son. So I ask you, why should you care about the book of Luke? Because God handpicked Luke to be the one to tell the world that you were beat up and broken and left for dead on the side of the road. But Jesus Christ saw you and he had a gut-wrenching compassion for you. And you were the selfish, unfaithful son who turned your back on God and squandered what he gave you. But when you came to your senses and you turned around, Jesus was filled with a gut-wrenching compassion and Jesus Christ ran to you because he loved you that much He has that compassion and that love for you. Yes, you will find Jesus in the book of Luke, but more importantly, in the book of Luke, Jesus will find you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this great book of the Bible. 
And Lord, today we begin an exciting journey together. Through this book where you make it so crystal clear that Jesus Christ didn't just come for the person sitting next to me. Jesus Christ came for me. Thank you for making it clear in this book, Lord Jesus, that even when we are faithless, you are still faithful. Thank you for making it clear to us in this book that even when we are beat up and bruised and rejected on the side of the road, you still bend down and lift us up. Thank you for reminding us through this book that even when we are lost, even when we are wandering, even when we turn our backs on you, you're there on that porch looking into the distance, just waiting for us to turn back to you. And when we do, you come a-running. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing yourself through this book and revealing the truth that you seek And you save all of us who are lost. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that over these next few moments, Lord, as we're going to be standing together and singing this song, if there is anyone here, O God, if there is anyone who has not made that decision to accept you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they turn around and say, I'm going home. I've been running long enough. I've been beating my head against this wall. I've, I've hit this dead end over and over and over again. Somehow I had this, this crazy notion that I can make it through life on my own. But who am I fooling? If anyone's here today, Lord, and they're finally at that point where they're willing to turn back toward home, I pray that they would. And, Lord, that they would come and talk with someone up here in the front or in back, Lord, and just ask that simple question, what must I do to be saved? How can I get right with God? How can I come back home to Jesus? I pray they'd ask, O oh God, and that today in this place lives would be transformed by the power of the gospel. Or if someone's here today and hurting God, I pray that they would come seeking prayer. Because, Lord, the prayer a righteous follower of Jesus is powerful and effective. I've seen that in my own dad's life in the past few days. And Lord, we're going to see it here today as well. Lord, I pray that you would just move. Move as you want to move. Move in minds, move in hearts, move in marriages, move in lives. For your honor and glory. In Jesus' name.